Good everyone. Uh, Kirk here again. Hey, we're in the middle of a teaching series about the I am statements of Jesus. So Jesus did this thing where he gave a bunch of illustrations to help people understand uh, who he was and what he was about. So we've been going through the sayings one by one, having a look at them in a bit of detail. And tonight, from John chapter 14, is I am the way, the truth and the life. Possibly the most famous uh, of the I am sayings and probably one of the most famous sentences in the Bible to the point where um, if you're visiting with us tonight, maybe it's your first time at church, uh, you may have actually heard this uh, quoted in one way or another. Sometimes famous bits of the Bible sort of filter into pop culture and get picked up in different ways. And so, yeah, this is a pretty famous sentence in the Bible. So what we want to do today is look at what was happening when Jesus said this and what it means. And I encourage you to keep your Bible open for this particular talk because we're going to be looking at the verses in a fair bit of detail. Um, and so I'll be encouraging you to read along with me fairly regularly. Now today's passage uh, from the chapter 14 is actually part of a longer story of a dinner that Jesus had with his disciples. So his disciples are his friends uh, and he's trading them to be basically his leadership team who's going to take over from him uh, when he's gone. And so the story actually started in John chapter 13 and it spans a a number of chapters. So we sort of pick up the story in the middle tonight. Um, And I guess if there was a soundtrack leading into this bit, uh, it would set an atmosphere of impending doom. Right? So something bad has been revealed and it's just around the corner, like the agitation in the room is growing. So this is what Jesus has outlined so far as the bad things that are going to happen. First, his friend Peter, arguably his best friend, is going to deny even knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but thrice. Thrice is a real word too, I'm told. Uh, Also, his friend Judas is going to sell him and all the other disciples out. And the big claim is that Jesus is going to die. So you've got this like hanging over this dinner that these guys are having. Um, And actually, all those things came true. But at this point in the story, they're predictions of Jesus. These are the things he says are going to happen. And so it's clear that that is troubling his disciples. So that's why when we come to chapter 14, verse 1, we see these words, Do not let your hearts be troubled. And that's like an attempt to change the soundtrack of the, the dinner to something a bit more cheery. And so... That's what today's passage is about. It's about Jesus um, giving his disciples the strength they need for the challenges that lie ahead of them. And he does this by talking about two themes, two themes that will help them be strong. The first theme you can see in the second half of the first verse, where he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. So this is the theme of Jesus himself being God. I'm going to pick up on that theme a little bit later in the talk. The second theme, which we'll talk about now, comes in verse 2, when he says, My father's house has many rooms. And so this is the theme of the followers of Jesus ending up in the home of God. Whenever Jesus says, My father, he's talking about God, right? So for those of you who've been going to church for a while, when you hear these words, what do you immediately think of? When you hear the words, My father's house has many rooms, where does your mind go to straight away? 
Colin Buchanan song, <laughs> which is about? Yeah, but what's the song about? Oh, it's just okay. It's just quoting the. Yeah, okay. So when you hear that, but what do you think? A house, heaven. Somebody said heaven. Yeah. It's he- a lot of people think about heaven. Who thought about heaven? In that section. All right, quite a number of people. And that's sort of a natural sort of uh, mental leap to make. So you go, all right, what do we know about heaven? Well, we know it's in the sky. And we know that, like, the landscape is basically clouds. uh, And they're, like, really fluffy and stuff. And unlike real clouds, you can walk on them. You don't just fall straight through. And uh, there's also, what else do we know about heaven? Um, there's good-looking angels there who tend to all be white Anglos for some reason. And um, everyone there wears white and plays classical instruments like a harp or a mandolin or something like that. And where do we learn all this important information about heaven? Philadelphia, Philadelphia cheese commercials or The Simpsons. <laughs> so here's my opinion for you. Let me just give you my opinion. If you have not done any decent investigation into what the Bible actually says about heaven, it's most likely you have a pretty inaccurate picture in your head of what heaven is actually like. So the risk is, what you'll do is you'll import that wrong image which you got from TV uh, and you'll put it into the Bible and you'll sort of, you know, you almost change the Bible because of importing that idea in. And actually, in this passage, it's not even 100% clear that Jesus is specifically talking about heaven when he talks about his father's house. He probably is, but there are other possibilities. Uh, And whatever the case, the idea of heaven is certainly not the emphasis. So if you did jump to fluffy clouds in your head, that's okay. You're not a bad person. Probably half the people in the room did that at least. Um, But... Uh, I just encourage you to put it to the side because it is just a sort of a creation of television programs and Renaissance artists. And let's just have a look at what the Bible is actually saying. The emphasis here is on God's house being a place where God lives and where people live also. You might go, oh, that still sounds like heaven. And I say, yeah, it does. Like, That is a legitimate connection to make. Like It's okay to think about heaven when we read those words. But I'd also say that in other parts of the Bible, we read that God is putting his spirit in the hearts of everyone who believes in Jesus. And that actually, it is the heart of a Christian person that is the place where God lives, God's house. And in fact, in the church calendar, today is the day of Pentecost, where annually we celebrate that very moment where God gives his spirit to his people and puts his spirit in their hearts. And so um, then we have verses like this one from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? God's temple being God's house. So there's multiple ways in the Bible to think about what God's house is. And once you know that and then you read these you know, these words, you might be a bit slower to just jump to heaven as the, the automatic conclusion. 
Um, and you'll realize that Jesus is kind of deliberately being a bit cryptic. He sometimes did this to sort of promote thinking and conversation. Because he says in verse 4 or to his disciples, he says, Well, you know the way to the place where I'm going. But straight away, Thomas says, No, we don't. <laughs> you know, Thomas wants extra information, GPS coordinates or a paper map or something. If you remember those things, it'll help you get to places like a piece of paper. This is paper here. Things are written on it. They're, they're this old thing that used to happen and it'll help you get around. And so now, whether it's heaven or the coming of the Holy Spirit or some combination of both, um, Jesus is encouraging his friends with the news that they will be with him. And that's the point, that they will be with him. And in verse 3 he says, I'm not going to be with you a little while because he's going to die. But he says that he'll make sure that they will end up in God's house. And he says this to strengthen them because there's a lot of bad stuff going to happen to the followers of Jesus in that short period after Jesus is gone. And he's seeking to give them the confidence to survive that and to stay faithful through it. And it's like, okay, practically how do they get to God's house, right? If it's not a road, if it's not a physical direction, um, how do you get there? And the way to get to God's house is via a relationship with Jesus. Um, so this is the famous bit in verse 6 where he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now as we've looked at the I am statements over the previous weeks, um, and if you'd like to catch up on this, we record all our talks and we put them on our website, so feel free to um, catch up if you've missed out. Um, but we've seen this idea of Jesus being the way to God, the way to a relationship with God. And uh, yeah, for example, a couple of weeks ago, we, he had the statement, I am the gate. That's basically saying, I am, I am the way. Come through me, I'm the gate that you walk through in order to get to God. So this is not a new idea if you were sort of reading this book in one... You know, so if you read the whole book of John, which is a biography of Jesus, in one sitting, which I'd recommend doing, actually, because it's a great thing to do. You've got to book yourself a couple of hours, but it's really great. But you would not be surprised to hear Jesus saying that he is the way to God at this point because he said it in a number of different ways already. Um, and so... What's new about this statement is that he adds in, he is also the truth and the life. And they're kind of like secondary statements behind the way. So let me sort of express this with body language and tone, right? So, I am the way, the truth and the life. Okay, that's sort of the emphasis in the original language. So how is Jesus the way to God? Well, he's the way to God because he is God. In verse 7, says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, Jesus says this sort of thing pretty often, where he says, if you've seen me, you've seen God himself. You know, it's like the same thing. Looking at me is like looking at God. And then he emphasizes this like over and over again in this section. Right? So have a look. Second part of verse 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And then verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. 
or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Now that last line, believe on the evidence of the works themselves, I think is Jesus kind of acknowledging that this claim to be God is pretty outrageous, like it's a full-on claim. And so what he does is he says, well, you can't just say that with no sort of backup. (laughs) So he points to the hundreds, perhaps thousands of miracles that he's done and says, there's some evidence that I'm actually God. Uh, and, and that makes sense, right? If you're a normal person who is not God, uh, then you can't heal hundreds of people. You can't calm a storm simply by talking to it. You can't just drive evil spirits out of a person. And you certainly can't raise your friends from the dead. Right? So the fact that Jesus had done all these things, it's fair enough for him to point to it and go, I'm claiming to be God, but there's also a fair bit of evidence that I am. Quite a lot. You can't do those things unless you are God. And so um, this is an interesting thing when we think about our popular culture at the moment. Have you noticed this? But like amongst certain majority groups, Christianity is kind of unpopular at the moment. It's like it's not that cool to be a Christian. You probably have circles of friends. It's much easier to be sort of public about being a Christian than in other circles. Uh, And it's because, I don't know, for, for various reasons, sometimes for legit reasons, I think, we're not very popular. But what I find interesting is that Jesus kind of seems to be immune to a lot of the criticism. Right? So Christian followers of Jesus will get criticized, but Jesus himself is still considered to be fairly groovy. And so you'll hear people say things like, Jesus is a great teacher, uh, he's a human rights activist, um, people admire his sacrifice and they admire like, the conviction of his beliefs. And they like some of the things Jesus said. You know, they like... Uh, he's talk about peace and he's talk um, about looking after the poor. And they liked that he was against things like greed and sexism and racism and that sort of stuff. And that's all good, by the way. I love those things about Jesus. Excellent. But people get stuck on the bit where Jesus says, yeah, I'm all those things and I'm God. And that's when people tend to disagree and find it more difficult. And I get that because it's a very hard thing to believe. I was talking to. I did this talk this morning at our morning service, and we're talking about the fact that this could be the most important or like significant sentence in the entire Bible, because um, it's a huge statement about who Jesus is, and it's quite. It's it's a big step of faith to believe this. Like, you know, when it comes to being faithful in, in Christianity, this is the big thing that you need to uh, put your faith in. And it's, it's a challenge. So. What we also need to acknowledge, though, is that Jesus did make this claim over and over again. And I think to those who believe he was just a good teacher or just an advocate or something like that, Jesus would say something like, I'm only a teacher worth listening to if I truly am in the Father and if the Father truly is in me. And if I'm not, then I'm not worth listening to. And then importantly, any chance we have a relationship with God, any chance of going to heaven, completely hinges on whether this sentence is true. Because if Jesus is a liar, then it kind of becomes unclear where we stand with God. And this whole thing of going to heaven when we die or being in relationship with God, it kind of falls apart because 
Jesus is the one who takes us there. You know, he's, he's the one we have access to God through. But if he's a liar and he's lying about that, then everything falls apart. And there's no, we can't have any confidence in the future. And we can't have any confidence that our relationship with God is real or means anything. And that's why it's great that Jesus doesn't just say, I am the way, but he also adds in that he is the truth. Now, you may have noticed that truth is a big topic of discussion these days. So last year, the Oxford Dictionary put out their word of the year, as they do every year. And last year, the word of the year was post-truth. Now, we can have a bit of a discussion about whether a hyphenated word is actually a word and whether it should win word of the year whatever point is they did it and they're the word guys right so let's just go with it Um, and so post-truth is an adjective relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief now that's a pretty wordy sort of definition from a bunch of wordy dudes at the Oxford Dictionary. So here's my summary. Um, Feelings have become more important than facts when it comes to working out what's true. And psychologists have actually done a bunch of research on this recently, and, and here's what they've worked out about beliefs, and that is that you are much more likely to believe something if it gives the thumbs up to your current lifestyle and current behavior. So if you come across a belief system that says, what you're doing now is awesome, you're the best, then you are much more likely to believe it than if it challenges the way you're living and actually says you need to change and maybe you need even need to feel bad about some of the things that you've been doing. Um, now, you still can, right? You still can be convinced to change your beliefs even if it does make you feel bad. But psychologists are suggesting that m- most of the time, Most people are just going with what makes them feel better about themselves. And that's all about feelings. There's not necessarily anything to do with facts. And so this is just sort of popping up, you know, in popular culture. This is not a Christian research. You know, it's just people working out what we think about truth. Then we've got the US president, Donald Trump. One of his favorite things to say is fake news and to be fair to the president fake news is a massive issue in our society that's just more and more saturated by the media i actually worked in the media at the the start of the 2000s for a few years and there was a whole bunch of deliberately fake news being reported then it is way worse now much much worse um because Anyone can sort of post news now because of all the social networking stuff. And we simply can't be sure that what the media is reporting is true. It's very difficult. But also, to be fair to the media, politicians like Donald Trump then just use the word fake news about any story that paints them in a vaguely negative light. And they don't necessarily present any facts to back that up or any evidence or anything. It's just they just say fake news to try and dismiss it and and sort of you know, get it out. And again, that's playing to opinions and feelings rather than to evidence. And so we're left sort of going, well, I mean, who are we supposed to believe on this? What is true? And so I've noticed that people are starting to get a bit sick of truth being just sort of up to your opinion. And so I've been linked to articles like, um, this is not by Christians, 
Um, you are entitled, sorry, you are not entitled to your own stupid opinion. Or, here's another one, you are entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And then we have this picture. This probably summarizes it quite well. So this is the idea that truth is subjective and that your truth might be different to my truth but might be different to their truth. Two people are looking at a number and depending on where you stand, it could be a six or it could be a nine. And they say, well, it just depends on your perspective. You know, Both people have the right truth. You know, It's 100% true for them. Uh, but then somebody's sort of taken this picture and adjusted it. And so they say, they cross out that and they go, no, no. But one of those people is wrong. Someone painted a six or a nine. They need to back up and orient themselves, see if there are any other numbers to align with. Maybe there's a driveway or a building to face, or they can ask someone who actually knows. People having an uninformed opinion about something they don't understand and proclaiming their opinion as being equally valid as facts is ruining the world. No one wants to do any research, they just want to be right. Now that's a generalisation, but you can probably see how this is working out in, in our culture. You know, and so there's these two pushes. One is like, just, just accept my truth, man, just accept it. That's your truth, this is my truth. And then other people going, no, 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 but like, truth needs to be more than that. And this is the discussion we're having. And it's my opinion that I think this is a good conversation for our culture to have because it's putting truth back on the agenda in important ways. And truth is sort of becoming valuable again. I think it almost lost value for a bit and it's back. And I hope what that will do is it will challenge Christian people and non-Christian people to really work out what do we believe is actually true and what is true for everyone and what is just my opinion. Because there's no way of getting around it if we come back to Jesus. You know, Jesus is making a huge claim when he says he is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you want to know the way to God? It's Jesus. Do you want to know the source of all truth? It's Jesus. Do you want to know the source of all life? It's Jesus. Jesus is claiming to be true always, everywhere. And you can only do that if you're God. No one here is allowed to do that. You're not allowed that your truth is true always everywhere. You can only do that if you're God. Now, if you're visiting, again, it's okay if that you're struggling to get your head around this, if you're skeptical, skeptical or doubtful about it, because even Jesus' closest friends were struggling to get their head around this, right? It is a hard thing to believe. It requires faith. But I would also say that if these claims of Jesus are true, and I believe that they are, then it's the best. Like it is the very best thing that we can know. You know, finally, in a world full of trouble, a world full of uncertainty about the future, a world full of post-truth and fake news, we have someone who is reliable, who we can trust with our life and with our death. And that person is not a flawed person like you or me. It's God himself. Verse 1, Jesus was seeking to comfort and strengthen his disciples in a time of trouble. They would have been asking the question, what's going to happen next? All this bad thing's going to go on. What are we going to do after that? What's the future look like? 
And I imagine some of you are asking the same question about things in your future. Now, whether you're struggling with health and wondering where that's all going to go. Maybe you're in a financial spot. Maybe you're wondering about certain relationships and what the future of those are going to be. Um, maybe it's just general life direction. Certainly for youth and young adults, that's often a big question, isn't it? Like, what am I going to do? Like, you know, I'm just about to finish school or I'm just about to finish a course and I just don't know what to do. And so that might be troubling you. And so for Christians, we can take a lot of encouragement that Jesus has got that long-term future sorted. It doesn't mean there won't be challenges along the way. There will be. There's lots of challenges for Jesus' disciples. Um, but it does mean that those challenges, uh, we can take them on with a bit of strength and a bit of confidence because we know that ultimately, through Jesus, we're going to be with God. And as it says in verse 2, in God's house, there's plenty of room for everyone. You're not going to miss out because it's too crowded. Now, as a church, uh, we've been praying and thinking about the future a lot in our current vision process, which Tim mentioned earlier in the service. And we're basically asking God in this process, what should we do next as a church? What should we focus on? Now, it's possible that this process, if you're regular, might be troubling you a little bit. Um, or if it's not troubling you now, maybe when the first draft comes out, that might trouble you a little bit. The first draft has not been written, so I'm not like making a prediction there. But you know, it may not be what you hoped for or you know, what you're looking for. It depends on what um, happens. But whatever the case, whether you're feeling troubled about it or not, it's always worth asking, how should we pray about the future? You know, what, in light of what we know about Jesus, how should we pray about the future? And Jesus says something about this in the last two verses. Verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, it's super easy to misinterpret these two verses, right? We could, we could read it like this. If I ask God for something, and I use the name Jesus, then God guarantees that he'll give it to me. <laughs> Just got to say Jesus, pop it in the prayer there, in the request, and it'll happen. That's one way you could interpret it. And I just got to say, from experience, that does not work, right? Uh, people still, sick people still die. Uh, I've asked for many jobs over the years, and I haven't got a bunch of them. Uh, and mum and dad never, ever got me a Super Nintendo for my birthday, right? So just saying Jesus in the prayer does not guarantee things. And that, that's a too simple way to read it anyway. Here's what I think it's actually saying saying when we ask for things that are actually in Jesus, right? when they line up with his way and his truth and his life, then it's a guarantee that it will be given. Now, I realize that the details of that are complicated, and that might be a life group situation for those of you in a life group. Talk about what it means to pray in Jesus' way, you know, or in Jesus' truth or in Jesus' life. What does that look like? It would be a really good conversation. Um, but it's a much more logical understanding of what Jesus is saying than if I use the name Jesus, I'll just get what I want. I mean, do you really want to live in a world where everyone just gets what they ask for because they say the name Jesus? That world would suck, right? So it's a good thing. Um, when we pray, you know, whether it's about our church vision or whether it's about anything else, what we need to do is make sure it's about God's way, not about you getting your way or me getting my way. And I think we often do that is we pray in that way that I just want what I want. I want God to give me what I want. And I think for those of you who are parents um, or who lead 
children or even youth leaders, like, I think we often teach kids to pray like that in an unhelpful way. We just go, what do you want from God? Let's ask him for it. Boom, 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 boom. Now, it's not wrong to ask God for things, but it's not also not helpful to set up this idea that he's just going to give us everything that we ask for. So that's not what the Bible teaches. And actually, God being good, he doesn't give us everything that we ask for because some of the things we ask for are dumb and we really would do better not to have them. Make sure it's about, those prayers are about relating with Jesus and learning his way and receiving his truth and his life, not about just your, you know, your own selfish desires. Ultimately, Jesus' disciples were able to take on the huge challenges that lay ahead of them because they were strengthened by their relationship with Jesus. Now, as I mentioned before, it's Pentecost Sunday in the church calendar. It's also my birthday, but that's kind of irrelevant to the point. Pentecost, as we celebrate each year, um, is more important because than my birthday because that was the day that Jesus gave his spirit to his disciples where God went to live in their hearts. And even though Jesus' body was gone and you couldn't have, sit down and have a meal with Jesus anymore, um, he was still with people through his spirit. And that is the same reality that we have today, that that spirit of Jesus is still at work in the world now, is still at work in this room right now. And so what I want to do to finish tonight's talk is to pray and acknowledge that God is with us through his spirit, that Jesus is with us through his spirit, and to ask for more of it. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that your way is best. Thank you that in you we have truth and we have life. We ask your help in times of trouble. And if you've got some trouble in your life at the moment, I'd encourage you just to name that silently in your head to God. He can hear you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I ask that you fill us each with your spirit. Strengthen us. Give us confidence. Confidence that we will ultimately be with you in the Father's house. And until then, until that time, please give us your love and your guidance so we can face the challenges life throws at us. We ask for more of your Spirit's power. In your great name, Jesus. Amen.